everybody and good morning extended Zilstra uh, visitors. Good to have you with us again and uh, I haven't even, Tim I can't, it was me, I didn't even meet your wife yesterday. Tim and Ruth, a uh, number of people will have known uh, the Zilstras from the Presbyterian Reformed Church that was here in Toowoomba and a number who were in a congregation were part uh, of that church. So, uh, Tim and Ruth are up for just for this weekend and back down to the Wangaratta this afternoon times. Glad you could be here with us and also the extended Ludlows. I was going to say Ludlow, but Ludlows I've been told's correct pronunciation. Okay, we're continuing to work our way through the book of Exodus. Everyone's hanging out next week when we go through about 10 chapters of instructions of building the tabernacle. Uh, Robbie was telling me that he was listening to some audio Bible in his house during the week and Stuart came out thinking... What are you listening to? Is this like some building instruction guide? So we're all keen and excited about that next week. But you'll have to wait an extra week. Let's open up prayers. We uh, look at the material we have read from Exodus 24. Heavenly Father, uh, at times we feel uh, so unworthy to come before you. But at the same time we are reminded that uh, we have every reason why we can come before you because of the completed work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that the very things that we are going to uh, look at this morning are your words, they're not Steve's words. Lord, I pray that you would um, protect me and keep me from saying anything that's not in accordance with your word. And Lord, even if I was to do so, uh, that you'd cause us not to, to hear those things and just allow them to just to blow away. Uh, Lord, work in me and work in all of us by your spirit to, to hear your word, to see something of the wonder and the glory of the God who has uh, saved us out of slavery to sin and death. And Lord, may we be, be changed as we have an encounter through, with you through your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. One thing I've noticed is we're not an overly patient culture, are we? We want everything and we want it now. Now, I've noticed one thing that we really don't like is say, for example, if you're waiting in line for something, you're waiting there for a while and you're probably complaining about to the people around you about how long the line is and how they should have had more staff or whatever else. And in the middle of your complaining, someone goes right to the front or they even get called to the front of the line. And you think, why do they get to go to that? And then not only do they get called to the front of the line, somehow they get some privileges that you didn't even know existed. And you ask the question, who makes these calls? Who decides who can go in and get all this early access? Why do they get it and we not? How come they get these privileges and we don't? I often wonder when we look at worship in ancient Israel, where there were clearly defined different tiers of access to God. Whether there was that any degree of questioning about that, because scripturally we don't see them complaining about the levels and the order in which God has ordained. Over the last three weeks we've been looking at everything from sort of the, the Ten Commandments and then what is called the, the Book of the Covenant, the, I suppose the, the civil laws given to the people, both in how they related to God and how they related to one another as they entered into the land. And what we've seen is we've looked at some of these covenant things 
Everything there was common to what was happening in the nations around them. There was an agreement set forth. There were the rules about how they were to conduct themselves. There were blessings for for obedience. There were curses for disobedience. And quite often these covenants were sealed in some sense by blood. But for a people who have been saved out of slavery, remember the Israelites have been in Egypt for 430 years, been brought out just as they were promised by God all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, that he would bring them out of that land to be a people of his own and to bring them into the promised land. So it's perfectly right that the God who created them, the God who saved them out of something they had no way of getting themselves out of, to bless them and to make them his own people, it is right that they honour him. They walk in obedience with him day after day. We see Moses right at the forefront. Moses giving them and explaining to them what it's required, how they are to live in relationship with him as they dwell with him in the land. But throughout these chapters, we see poor old Moses. Let's not forget, Moses is in his 80s. I don't know how big he was, up and down the hill over and over again. As God's chosen mediator to bring the word of the God to people, but also to bring the response of the people back to God. So sort of a bit of an outline where we're headed. Uh, the idea of committing to obedience in 1 to 8, seeing God in 9 to 11, and Moses entering into God's glory in verses 12 to 18. Then we'll wrap it up um, and sort of looking at the big picture at how that fits together. But in all the ups and downs of the mountain... So we look at verses 1 and 2. This time we've got Moses, we've got Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel. Now Moses is the only one who gets full, full, full access, all the others kind of worship from afar. Now these 70 elders aren't specifically defined. It may go back to chapter 18 when Jethro challenged Moses and said, it's not good for you to be doing all this. You need to point other people over these particular areas, potentially these are, uh, where these 70 men come from. But Moses alone comes to God while the others worship from afar. And there's something in the, the Sinai encounter which is almost a foreshadowing both of the tabernacle, which they're about to receive instructions for, but also the temple. Now, there was always a, a defined access to God. Like when you see when the tabernacle comes, you look through the book of Numbers and you see the arrangement of the community of God. You see the, the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies right at the centre of the camp and then surrounding circles around that from the, from the cleanest and the holiest and working their way out. Whereas unfortunately, because of a skin condition I'd have, I'd actually be outside of the camp. So it wouldn't have been good for me in those days. But we've already seen back in Exodus 19 this idea of differing levels of access. But in verse 3, we see Moses, as the mediator, brings the word of God to the people, telling them all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord he has spoken, we will do. So we've got two aspects there. We've got God bringing a message to the people. So Moses bringing God's message to the people and we see the people's wholehearted response to obedience. Now the idea of words and rules, they sound pretty generic terms, don't they? You just think, oh, you just, just told them the stuff that God said. But they actually are specific words that have been used to introduce very important parts in this section we've been looking at. 
When we look back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, as he began to bring the Ten Commandments, says, these are the words of the Lord. And when you get to 21.1, when it goes into the book of the covenant with regards to the rules, says, these are the rules. So what he's bringing to the people is but all of this material from Exodus 21 to the end of Exodus 23. Now that held a pretty high standard of what it meant to live in relationship with God. We saw repeated over and over again, I am your God. I brought you out of Egypt. You have no other gods. Not only will you not make other gods, you won't even join in any sense with the culture and the religion of the, na- the, the land in which you're going into. Every single thing about the way you relate to one another, if you see someone lose, lose something, you want to make restitution, you want to make benefit for it, even, even if it wasn't specifically your fault. It was a really high standard of living they were called to. But the people respond, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's a pretty big response to make, isn't it? And we know as we look through the history of the Old Testament, they didn't do real good at that, did they? It's probably like when your kid promises, I'll do do all of this. I'll clean up all my toys every night because I love you so much, Daddy. You're not so good on that one, following through on that. But why would they even agree to something that had such high and lofty standards? Why would you make a promise, all this, we're going to do it? Effectively, the answer is, the one who called them to do it is the God who created them to whom they belong, the one who has rescued them out of Egypt, out of slavery. There is no other response. How much of a mockery would it be to God to say, some of that will do it. You're worthy of some of our worship, some of our obedience. But this isn't the finalising of the covenant, as we'll see a little bit later on. Now Moses writes down all of these words, so potentially what we have here in chapters 20 to 23 is now the result of Moses writing this down. And the next morning he builds an altar. We saw back in chapter 20 some specific instructions of how an altar was to be built, and so presumably he built it that way. And they performed two sacrifices which incidentally are the same sacrifices back from Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, which were the burnt offering and the peace offering or fellowship offering. And there's some significance in seeing both what these two offerings indicated, but also the order in which they took place. The burnt offering, which we see described in greater detail if you read the entirety of Leviticus 1, but just to sort of summarise some of the key points in verses 3 and 4, if his offering is a burnt offering from the Lord, from the herd, he shall make an offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the house of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So the very first thing is this burnt offering that was offered on a daily basis for the reasons so that they could be acceptable in the sight and the presence of the Lord. It's always clear from the beginning, you do not be acceptable in the sight of the Lord other than a substitutionary death taken on on your behalf. So it's to be accepted before him and to make atonement for sin. It was the one sacrifice where the entirety of the animal was consumed. And secondly, which followed after that, having been accepted and make atonement, there was a peace offering. 
You see full of details of that in Leviticus chapter 3 if you're really keen to get some Leviticus reading up in your spare time. And it, was a, it was a reminder that they had peace and fellowship with God. But that peace and fellowship with God can only come when they have had their sins dealt with before God. But also there's an element in both of those that the, the burnt offering was sort of seen symbolically as like as being a meal and a and food for God. Whereas with the peace offering, the things were actually prepared and, and provided for the food of the worshipper. So there is a sense, as was common in the case of covenants at that time, that there was a, there was a sharing of a meal together. We see it with Isaac and Abimelech in Genesis 26, and Laban and Jacob in Genesis 31. But here things start to get a little bit weird. It's not at all uncommon that when sacrifice is made, the blood is collected into bowls. We see that in a lot of the sacrificial system, the blood in one bowl would be taken and put on the, the, put on the altar, particularly when the tabernacle is built, where, where the presence of God's, God's presence would dwell there above the, uh, above the altar. They placed the altar there as a sign that their blood had been spilt on behalf of a sinful man to, to bring them before God. But then Moses goes and reads the book of the covenant to the people again. Now, we know we covered that a couple of weeks ago, and it's a thrilling read, so you can see why they wanted a second instalment. But part of you think, why would you read it again? He's read it all to them before, and they said, we will do it. Well, it was actually very common in when making covenants for things to go through on a, on a twofold state. The first time so that they could understand it and accept what was going on, and secondly, to commit to and confirm let me give you a, a modern example. I'm sure all of us at some point have been to a wedding ceremony and you'll notice that there's two parts of a wedding ceremony that to some extent seem identical and, and almost redundant. Now the, there's the wedding consent when, when the minister says, do you, Nicholas Gertrude, Gertrude Baltrop, Gertrude's not his middle name, I'll just add that for fun, take Laura Dorito Scott, to be your lawfully wedded wife. And they say, yeah, I do, hopefully, when it gets to that point. And then they do the same. So they've already agreed to do this. But then later on in the ceremony, they say, I, Nicholas, what was it? Gertrude, Baltrop, and I will do this, this, and this. So there's, 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 there's that two-stage thing we already see in our own um, culture and environment of accepting, but then confirming and convening personally. But much like in the wedding where the, where the vows is the stronger point, we see here the response of the people actually gets heightened as well. Not only to say, we will do it, they say, we will be obedient. They're very clear about what they're setting out to do. So the repetition itself isn't unusual, but the next bit is a little bit weird. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord made with you in accordance with these words. Now, for those of you currently involved in membership classes, are really excited to know that this isn't part of any ritual we have to bring you into membership. The Philharmonic Society are very glad it's not part of, part of a ritual we do in here either. But blood is a very important central theme in the scriptures, isn't it? And it, not only for, for atonement, but also in the nature of covenants. Remember, we go back to Genesis chapter 15, the covenant with Abraham, where there was a carcass split in half, and Moses and God, oh sorry, Abraham and God, walked through between those two parts. It's a way of saying 
I'm committed to this, and if I'm not, then I'll die. But as we see here, we see half of the blood go on the altar. That the sin has been atoned for. But then the other half applied to the people that they are bound to God by blood, but also too that the gracious and merciful effects of that atoning blood is being applied to them as well. But it's not so much the sign that if one is unfaithful that there is death. But as the blood is half on the altar and half on the people, a reminder for when they do fail that God has provided through the sacrificial system a mean by which their sins can be atoned. Now to give yet another twist in the story, what is this with seeing God? Whoops, if I... Verses 9 to 10. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it was, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So as they go up, Moses, Aaron, his sons, the elders, says, they see God. That should sound a little bit foreign in our ears, shouldn't it? Because we, you know coming in other parts of the Bible and particularly just further down in Exodus chapter 33 God says no one can see me and live how is it these people have seen God do they not fit together those two ideas well let's look to see what happened in Exodus chapter 33 so this is when Moses says to God let me see your glory God speaking says but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand till I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Is it at odds what has been said here in chapter 33 and 24? My simple answer is no. Like in chapter 33, we see God actually says, I'll put you, I'll cover my face, then I'll go past it, then you will see my back. Look back at Exodus 24. Do they see God in his glory in all of his entirety? No. Matter of fact, the only thing we see described of what they see is what's underneath his feet. Like if you're downtown and you see someone from behind, can you say, I saw Steve down at the shops? Or do you have to see every single part of him to say that you saw Steve at the shops? So I don't see um, a contradiction between the two, but the idea that we cannot see the full glory of God uh, in this life and live. But one thing it's very clear to say, as these people saw something of God, even what was under his feet was too, too much they couldn't even describe in their own words. Some would say that's because they've fallen down in worship. This, the text doesn't actually say that, but it may be the case. But we should also note that when reading this, I think the author expects to think these people are going to die, they've seen God. Because he highlights the exception to the rule in verse 11 saying, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, they ate and drank. Some would say that directly following the atonement for sin that maybe somehow they did have access to a fuller. But again, they're not given enough details to answer that. One thing we do know is that they were not killed 
And they beheld God, they ate and drank. Probably in terms of that that fellowship of that meal associated uh, with the covenant. Now Moses, our ageing man, heads up the mountain one more time. This time to receive two tablets with, with the law on them. Now it's often said, you know, you need two tablets, it's a little bit, little bit long, you want half of it hit, half of it there. But common practice when covenants were made in, during, during those times is that two copies were made identical, one for each party, and potentially that is what has been happening here. But it's not just a case of going up and getting these tablets. We see the time where he's given those full and exciting instructions for the building of the tabernacle, where God will dwell amongst them in their midst. Joshua is is described as being Moses' assistant who comes with him some degree of the way, but the details we don't know. But for 40 days, 40 nights, Moses isn't just on top of a mountain. It says Moses entered into the cloud. The cloud which has been symbolic so far of the very presence of God. And Moses enters up into that very cloud for 40 days and for 40 nights. But before leaving, he appoints others. He's certainly learned something along the way from Jethro. He's appointed others in his stead. He's appointed Aaron and her, and they're probably good people to appoint. Remember, you go back to chapter 17, the battle against the Amalekites. When Moses' staff was up, they were winning. When they were down, they were losing. And so Aaron and her get the clever ideas. Let's just hold his hands up. And so these are the ones who have been appointed to judge and settle disputes um, during Moses' time away. But during those 40 days and 40 nights... Not only does Moses receive uh, the instructions for the tabernacle, which we'll look at next week, but then the week after that we'll also look at what are the rest of the people doing in Moses' absence, and it's not a particular pretty sight. But both in chapter 19 we saw, and today, there was, under Old Testament, very different limited access to God. It provides us sort of foresight towards heading towards building the tabernacle where again we saw uh, when you get to numbers you've got the, the, the tabernacle at the beginning and sort of concentric circles working your way out from holiest to, to least holy. And as I stated before, according to Old Testament law, I would be outside of the camp because of a skin condition. The same sort of division and, and different levels of access continued in through to the temple we see there you've got the holy place, you've got the priest courtyard, you've got where the general everyday Jewish men can be, you've got an area where the women only can be, then you've got an area outside that where the Gentiles can be. Very different access. But remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross. The temple curtain tore in two. This is one bit where I wish the, the Bible was a bit clearer. Was it the temple into the Holy of Holies as signifying that all now have access to, to God directly, which they do have as a result of Jesus' completed work? Or was it between the area that separated the Gentiles? Either way, it's very clear that all Gentile and non-Gentile, through the completed work of Jesus Christ, can now have equal and same access to God. The point is, what Jesus has done ends that separation, completely ends that division. Now, when you look through the Old Testament, there was sort of like perceived different levels of holiness and cleanness, or who was able to get closer, who was able to do certain things. 
where the people of God was defined as a nation, people descended by Abraham. But now a people of God is not something that's genetically passed down. It's not by belonging to a nation. It's not belonging to a particularly family line. It's about belonging to Jesus Christ. That doesn't something you're not born into. It's not something you inherit. But it's something that is available. For those who recognise that they have fallen short, that recognise that he is worthy of all glory and honour, he is worthy of our obedience, he's our rightful ruler, our creator, the one to whom we belong. And so we realise that we deserve death for the way in which we've treated him, turned our back upon him, rebelled against him. We can also pour out our hearts thanksgiving that he took that punishment of death on our behalf. That Jesus died a death for our sin, not for his. That all who would trust in him and not just trust in him or believe the, the fact that he died on a cross for sinners, but trust in that that death was on our behalf and because we came before him confessing that we'd rebelled against him, that we weren't treating him as his, our rightful ruler as he ought, he ought to be, not only do we trust in his death, but we turn to him as our rightful ruler and king and live in relationship with him. But as we are related to him, there isn't those same distinctions anymore. From the person who's been the longest Christian as the highest level of, within a particular church to the person who's had a wicked past and has just come to Christ. For every single one of them, when they enter into faith, receive the very righteousness of Christ. Have the very same access to God. As Paul expresses it to the Galatians. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So in Christ there isn't division. All have the same standing before God. All have the same access before God. All have been given the same righteousness of Christ. But we need to take a time to reflect about the people who have come before us under the Old Testament. Under the Old Testament, one day a year, one man could enter into the presence of God. And even then, only with the blood of a sacrificed animal on their behalf, on the Day of Atonement. It's interesting that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, that we've seen a little bit of reference to this morning, They actually came into the very Holy of Holies in a way that wasn't with blood, in a way that wasn't prescribed, and they died. For all you Leviticus lovers, that's in Leviticus chapter 10. But we see the high importance of it is that one man only once a year could get into the very presence of God to commune with him in that sense. And now through Christ, every single person who is in relationship with him has that access 24-7. Something that people would long and look forward and see, wow, the high priest gets to go do this. You can do every day, any minute. So the writer of the Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence then to the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now the people of Israel, they were sprinkled with the blood. We have been sprinkled once for all. Jesus Christ sacrifices once for all, which gives us access to God. It says, therefore we can boldly approach him. And just as the Israelites ate and shared in this feast time as part of their covenant, so also in a short moment, we're going to look at something that was foreshadowed there. When we partake in the, the bread and the cup, as we look as to that being symbolised, and as Jesus said, this is, when he took the cup, this is the, the blood of the new covenant. But also too, points us forward to an even greater feast. The Revelation talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb, when all of those of all time who have trusted in God will be gathered around the throne and sharing in that wonderful feast and celebration with him. And we all look forward to that day. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, sometimes we take so seriously for granted how um, we can come before you at any time, before the true and living God. That we don't need to come through a priest. That we don't need to come and bring further sacrifices. Because everything that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament finds its complete fulfilment in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that we don't need to return to sacrifice time and time again as we see how we fall short of your perfect and glorious standards. We were simply told that you are, when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Lord, help us to, to value and pr- that wonderful privilege that we can come before you at all times, that we have access to the living God. We live in relationship with you, that you even dwell within our very bodies by your Spirit. May it be the greatest joy of our heart to commune with you. May we treasure that which Old Testament saints would have longed and desired so deeply. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we we thank you too that even what we see and experience of you now is only in part of what we will have when we see you face to face. So we give you thanks and help us to remember as we uh, come around your table this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we've been going through Exodus, I did say...